Good morning. Um, if when I walked up here to the pulpit, you weren't already thinking, I knew we should have visited the in-laws this weekend. <laughs> welcome, welcome to my first sermon. Uh, no, I'm, I'm so happy to be here. I'm very excited for this opportunity. Um, I'm thankful, so thankful to our pastors, to Ajay and Binu, uh, for their leadership, for their mentorship, for their tolerance of me, uh, for their patience. Uh, no, it's been great. Uh, thankful for my family, uh, for my friends. Some came a really long distance just to hear me preach and to throw rotten fruit at me. Uh, we'll see. Uh, Uncle Charlie and Juanita, I um, uh, need to apologize for telling you that I, I wasn't preaching. Um, I actually am. So, no. <laughs> All right. This passage from Romans deals with the law of God. In other words, his commandments and rules for living. This passage also talks about the law of sin that dwells within us, indwelling sin. These verses are some of the, the most highly debated verses in all the Bible. And for me, the researcher and speaker, that's been a really fascinating and interesting thing. For you, the listener, hopefully that's not too frightening. There's basically two camps of thought here uh, about who Paul's talking about. One side says that he's talking about the pre-Christian, pre-saved, uh, pre-born-again type of believer. The other side says, no, this is the Christian, saved, born-again believer. Uh, many scholars and pastors have different viewpoints on it, um, but to split hairs over this, it's, it's really not doctrinally incorrect. It's not going to make you more of a Christian if you think one way, less of a Christian if you think the other. Um, to, to, so to take one side or the other and to spend a lot of time thinking about who they're talking about is to miss the overall point about what the law of God and what the law of grace can do for you. So pray with me uh, as we begin. Heavenly Father, um, you've, never, you've never gone back on your word. You've never reversed one of your promises uh, to any of your people in all time. And now, Father, I, I ask in the name of your Son that you would promise again to be steadfast and true to me, that you'd be faithful to your word and to your people, and that you would guide each of us through this sermon, that you'd guide each of us through your word, that you would uncover and open up the parts of our heart that we don't want to open up or that we didn't even know were there. Have mercy on us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So here it is right up front. Uh, if I had one thing to say to Seven Mile Road Church, it would be this. If you trust in Jesus with your life and believe in the gospel, then you are forgiven all your sins. And you're spared the condemnation that we deserve for not perfectly following the law of God. So uh, I've kind of tipped my hand. Um, I believe that this is the Christian experience that Paul's talking about here. I'm not going to spend any more time talking about that and going into that. Uh, rather, I'm going, to, I'm going to spend the bulk of my time, the whole time, uh, going verse by verse, uh, explaining what Paul's talking about, and hopefully giving you some practical application uh, as we go along. But before, before I begin, I, I, I need to give you kind of a disclaimer. Um, this isn't going to be a pleasant hugs and kisses kind of sermon. Uh, it's, it's not going to be a um, happy kind of sermon until the end. Um, 
because of the twisted and wretched nature of sin, I'm going to say things that maybe you didn't expect to hear or you just don't want to hear at all. But I have to say this also up front uh, so that you can just wrap yourself in this truth. The war with sin has been won. Christ has conquered over death. If you're in Christ, an eternal catastrophe has been averted. To the Christian, to you, I say that your eternal destination is secure. But for many of us, if not all of us, we will experience the valley of the shadow of death because of indwelling sin. So uh, some background on Romans on chapter 7. Uh, the theme of Romans is summed up in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul was writing this letter to the, to the believers in Rome, both Jews and Gentiles. His desire was for the Romans to develop a solid theological foundation so that their, faith, their young faith could thrive and so they could be effective for the gospel. And in the chapters leading up to chapter 7, Paul began a discussion on the law. And this began back in chapter 5 as Paul talked about sin entering the world through one man, Adam, preceding the law being given to Israel. In verse 20, Paul says, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And Paul wasn't saying that the law caused sin. He wasn't telling the Romans that if you strive to live by and abide by the law, the result will be sin. His point in chapters 5, 6, and 7, when talking about the law and sin, is that the law magnifies sin. The law shows sin to be sin. Here, where Paul's talking, he says it's a lens to look at sin through. The law is perfect, holy, and pure, and it exposes how dirty, rotten, and twisted sin is. So having this quick background on Romans being about the righteousness of God delivered through the gospel of Jesus and the establishment of the law, being, the law of God being good, let's jump into our text. Um, starting in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Verse 13 acts as a transition between the first half of chapter 7 and the second. Paul shows that the law is good. While the law remains a good thing, sin is shown to be absolutely awful. The law is good, but the flesh is wicked. It's not that laws cause wrongdoing. If we are prohibited from doing something, it's not the prohibition that entices us to do it. What Paul's talking about here is the law of God. He's asking if the law brings death to us. Paul even qualifies the law and calls it, calls it good. But his point here is that God's good law is not the cause of death in us. God's law is outside of us, meaning it's external. We don't possess it. But rather, we possess indwelling sin. So I've used this phrase, indwelling sin, a few times now. Indwelling sin is something that we're all born with. Paul tells us early in Romans that sin entered the world through one man, and death entered the world through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. Did you ever drop food coloring into a glass of water? We did this uh, kids camp this week. Um, 
As soon as the dye hits the water, it just completely infuses with the water. It doesn't leave any ounce of it untouched by the, the food coloring. So as Adam and Eve disobeyed in the garden, disobeyed God in the garden, sin was given birth to mankind. It's, sin is as hereditary as your hair color. Indwelling sin is what drives the natural tendency that we have to do wrong even when we want to do right. Just as a virus causes all sorts of symptoms in your body, sin causes all sorts of problems in your body and in those around you. Have you ever heard the phrase, this is a, have you ever heard the phrase, guns don't kill people, people kill people? It's a stupid phrase. But, but I never, I, I bet you never heard the phrase, for the man, the magazine cover doesn't force him to lust, he causes himself to lust. Or for the woman, the model on TV doesn't force her to be jealous or depressed, she causes herself to be jealous. So it's not the law or the prohibition that causes sin. It's not the magazine cover that forces a man to lust. It's not the size zero model on TV that causes a woman to be depressed. We're born with sin in our flesh, and sin is at odds with the law. The sinful nature of our bodies is opposed to the law of God. Sin, sin takes this whole, I said it before, sin takes this holy and perfect law of God and uses it against us. How many times have you woken up the next morning or the next day with regret or shame over what you said the day before or did the day before. You can fill in the blank yourself. To bring it even closer, are you sitting here this morning with a sweating heart and a guilty mind over how it happened again or how you said it again? In the next several verses, Paul begins this monologue where it looks like he's debating within himself about the good he wants to do versus the evil that he actually does. Verses 15 through 20 can be a little tricky, so I'm going to read it all together and then go verse by verse. So starting in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. There's an apparent disconnection between Paul's mind and his body. I do what I don't want to do. His desires of the mind and his, his actions of the flesh or the body are at odds with each other. Put it into food terms. I have a love-hate relationship. It's more like an obsessive, abhorrent relationship with Turkey Hill's best flavor, Rocky Road. I've got some in the freezer right now. Well, yeah, there's not much left. but um, I, I don't care about Ben or Jerry. I don't want that tasteless stuff that Breyer sells. While we're at it, you can have Franklin Fountain. Have you ever been there? Just give me Rocky Road. Give me a, give me a bowl of that. Give me a quart. I'll take a whole half gallon. I don't know why I'm... Yeah. But I, I, I eat this stuff, and I know that it's going to make me put on weight. I know that it's not good for my health, even though I really want to, you know, indulge in it. The high of ingesting is quickly followed by a low of indigesting. We've, we've all been there. But let's get, let's get candid about sin. The counselor and author, David White, the same guy who did our, our men's retreat last fall, 
uh, says this specifically about sexual sin, but I think it applies to sin in general and how it affects a person's thoughts. David White says, have you noticed that the desires are taking up more space in your head? Maybe you're able to manage your behavior on a day-to-day -day basis, but do you invest time carefully planning your next opportunity or savoring the memories of your last exploit? How do you respond to others when your carefully orchestrated plan is thwarted? Maybe your behavior looks okay on the outside, but inwardly, you're enslaved. Does this sound familiar? For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. This disconnect between my mind and my body ruins me, whether it's overeating or pornography or embezzling or drug and alcohol abuse or a sharp tongue or, or whatever. When we sin, we're bending to the force of indwelling sin that's in us and letting, us, letting it, run it run our lives. Now, verse 16 has this odd statement, Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Paul is not saying that when we do what we do not want, in other words, when we sin, we're literally thinking to ourselves, gee, this sin makes God's law look really great. It doesn't, that doesn't happen at all. If anything, it makes God's law look incredibly daunting, unattainable. What Paul is saying is that by the commission of sin, by sinning, we're also affirming the holy nature of God's law. Sin stands in contrast to the perfection of God's law. There's no room for it. Jesus said, man can't serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll despise the one and be devoted to the other. So it is with sin and God's law. You can't do it. Paul says in verses 17 through 18, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Has anyone ever experienced sleep paralysis? It's one of the, the most terrifying things I've ever experienced. I've, I've gone through it dozens of times in my life. Here's a definition of sleep paralysis. A feeling of being conscious but unable to move. You may be unable to move or speak for a few seconds, up to a few minutes. Some people may also feel pressure or a sense of choking. Now, in my experience, I've seen people, I've heard screams, and I've felt real pressure on my body. It, it's terrifying. And the moment that I can finally wrestle myself up, I, I walk around the room and splash cold water on my face and try to wake myself up so that when I lie down again and fall asleep, it doesn't happen again, but then I lie down and fall asleep and it happens again. Well, ironically, there's a new documentary out called The Nightmare, and it's about sleep paralysis. Um, in the trailer, I only watched the trailer, I'm not going to see the movie. Um, Charles and Mike know I hate, I hate horror movies. Um, the participants in this documentary recount their horrific experiences, so uh, listen to this. Laying down to go to sleep, I would feel utterly exhausted, almost as if I had just been dropped, and my eyes sealed shut, and my mouth sealed shut, and it's as if everything was shutting down except my awareness and consciousness. I had zero control over my body. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't move my arms, my legs. I would try and fight it. It was just so strong. You're totally paralyzed. You can't, you can't move. Isn't it the same with your experience with sin? I know that sin is powerful. Past failures prove that I can't beat it. I can't reason with it. 
can't fight against it. No matter how hard I try to escape it, I, I just can't. Verse 18 calls us out. It says, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So when you lie down to sleep, you want to sleep. You're not expecting to be trapped within your own flesh. When you jump on the computer late at night to see why Chip Kelly did this or that or whatever, you just want to know. When you pick up the phone to call your friend to talk about the party on Saturday, you have a legitimate purpose. Verse 18, for I do know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So eagles.com turns into something else.com. And addresses on a guest list turn into, can you believe how she dresses her children? Intimate insider knowledge of trade rumors turn into intimate chatting with a stranger. The menu for the party quickly dissolves into how much weight so-and-so has put on. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. How did, how did this happen? Why did, I, why did I click that link again? Why was I so consumed with bad-mouthing her? Now every time I see her, I can't, can't even talk to her. These inner conversations happen all the time, don't they? You beat yourself up, you can't get out of the rut, you're helpless, and you've lost faith again. And then you stand, sit, kneel, or lay down face to face with who you really are. And the person who you thought you were, the person who you wanted to be, the person who you had worked so hard at becoming is now the person that you never expected to be. You're starting to see indwelling sin. Don't lose focus. Stay with me. So far in these verses, we've heard Paul pronounce God's law to be good and declare his inability to do the right thing despite his desire to do it. Maybe you see your spouse here. Maybe you see a brother or sister or a friend and you think back to that last conversation where they poured their heart out to you, vulnerable, lamenting over sin, wondering why they are still the way that they are, doing the same things. Can you put yourself into these verses? Friends, are you willing to get serious about what's inside? But why bother, right? And well, what difference does it make? After all, isn't it permissible to chalk negativity and vices up to bad childhood or rebellious teenage years? Socially acceptable to just accept yourself? All those beatings you received? (laughs) That one time or that thousandth time you were abused, no father, no mother growing up, a humble, modest, or excessive upbringing, what's what's the real source of your problems? Where's the the bottom to all of this? Verse 20. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Are you sitting here this morning not happy with your life? Deep down in some secluded corner of your heart, you're not satisfied. You don't like who you are because of the things you do or think or say. Verse 20 is a pivot point in this text. Verse 20 both explains the root cause of my behaviors, but it also confirms my worst nightmare. 
If you believe in Jesus, maybe you think that at some point in your salvation experience, whether it was in the waters of baptism or during your first prayer or sometime right after, that you thought life was going to get easier and easier and easier. Now that you're saved, now that you're born again. But everyone, no matter where you stand on faith or religion, if you're human, and as long as there's breath in your lungs and blood in your veins, you still have indwelling sin. And verse 20 is so simple. If you're waiting for some deep theological bomb to drop, stop waiting and start seeing sin for what it really is. Evil. Awful. Deceitful. And when I, when I moved into the parsonage over here um, last year, I had, I had grand ambitions for gardening and landscaping. I remember walking around the, the church property, and I, I saw this one particular plant all over the place. I got real excited because I thought it was bamboo. Now, I'm not a go big or go home kind of guy unless it comes to cutting things down. Um, as a matter of fact, if you're new to Seven Mile Road Church, uh, in the past couple months, we used to have 14 trees that lined up. No, um, so I went to town on this one particular patch of bamboo that was outside the kitchen window uh, in the parsonage. Uh, after I, I took it out and just like completely uprooted it, that side of the house looked really nice. You could see out the window and everything. Uh, the seasons changed. Winter came and went. Snow melted and everything. Plants started coming up. Leaves started sprouting. It wasn't long before the bamboo, or what I thought was bamboo, came back. It's actually called Japanese knotweed. No pun intended. Capital K-N-O-T-W-E-E-D. Knotweed. But, but it is a weed. <laughs> the, I would, I would let, the, I'd let the tallest ones get about three feet high before I came in and just completely obliterated their population. I thought it was all gone, like, you know, back in the fall when I, when I cut it out, but this plant is just so invasive, so resilient that you really have to like dig down into the, into the earth to, to get rid of this thing. In fact, if I'm not careful with this weed up, up, up there, uh, it'll actually grow out into the grass and just like completely disrupt the grass. So when we're done with church, the kids are out here playing. If you look down in the tree line, you can see the Japanese knotweed. I mean, if you're really serious about like seeing how invasive this stuff is, take a couple steps into the woods. The further you go in, the more of this stuff you'll see. It's just so resilient. When we're done with church, and tonight when you're settling down for the evening, take a look in here. That's indwelling sin. When you thought you were good enough, when you thought you were holy enough, when you thought you had tamed your tongue, reverted your eyes, shut your mouth, or held back your hand, that's indwelling sin. Invasive, resilient. Verse 21 through 23. So when I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. There's a story of a theologian and author named J.I. Packer about an occasion where he was dealing with his own sin. The Packer was studying at Oxford where he had heard a sermon on indwelling sin. He was a godly man, intentionally set apart for the ministry. He was very, had a very sensitive conscience, and he wasn't perfect. And despite frequent repentance and rededication to God, there was still no perfection. 
His repeat failed attempts at attaining the heights of perfection instead took him to the lows of depression and the contemplation of ending his life. But what rescued Packer from the cliff of utter despair was a new and fuller understanding of the biblical realism of indwelling sin. J.I. Packer learned that while his new life in Christ was going to one day take him to heaven, it was also going to be a lifelong fight of faith against sin. This is true of me, too. Um, about 10 years ago, uh, I, was, I was saved in um, August of 2001. About 10 years ago, uh, after I'd come home from Iraq, I got involved volunteering with my, my old elementary school, tutoring. And uh, I, I wanted to do it because it was a good thing. It was, it was a, a noble thing to do. Um, but I was still in the flesh. I was still this, this divided man. Uh, so I would usually go in on Fridays to tutor, but Thursday night before, I went out with some friends. And we started drinking, we got drunk, and then as the night went on, we decided to get high. I passed out, and I woke up the next morning, and still I went in to the school to tutor because I had this, this conflict within me against the law of my mind and the law of my flesh. I wanted to do what was right, but I still, I still was conflicted. I was denying God. I was denying God's law. And I wondered, how, how could I choose to serve what the law of flesh was telling me to do instead of what the law of God was telling me to do, instead of what I loved, instead of what I wanted? Do you wonder the same for yourself sometimes? I read one author's take on, on this dilemma that we find ourselves in more often than we wish. The predicament we all share is that while we are new creations in Christ and have been giving living hearts with which to know and worship God, we are still very sinful people. We remain weak, rebellious, and inclined toward drifting away from God until the day we see him face to face Along with the hymn writer, each one of us can say, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We wander away from what we know and believe to be the safest and best thing we could possibly ever have. Why? Why, why does this happen so much? Why is it still happening to you? Why is it still happening to me? And then... <laughs> If that wasn't bad enough, we're left with shame and guilt. We're alone with regrets upon regrets, and we hate ourselves for who we never, for who, we hate ourselves for who we never thought we could ever be, especially after saying we believed in grace. Have bad decisions or stupid mistakes ever taken you to dark places? Has the cycle of doing what you don't want to do ever transported you to a state of mind where there are no more sunny mornings? There's no goodness, there's no hope, there's no peace. <laughs> it, and we wrestle with wanting to do with, with we wrestle with wanting to do what is right. Deep down inside we do love God. Deep down inside we really do love His law. And if you believe in the gospel of Jesus, you know this is true. And these arguments that we have with ourselves make us feel guilty. Sure, the sin and the things that we do that we don't want to do provide enough, uh, provide enough guilt and shame. But the hardest thing to deal with is the question, why am I still the same dirty, no good, wretched woman 
wretched man that I, I, thought, I thought was gone. What do you do with that? Where do you go with your thoughts? How do you beat yourself up? I know for me, I get revenge on myself with a whole spectrum of emotions from, from, from deep depression to hyperlegalism. And the shame? <laughs> the shame is like a sickness you go to bed with every night, hoping that a good night's rest will cure it, only to wake up the next morning with more shame. Where's the escape? Where, where's the end? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Another story, another personal story. When I was just coming home from Iraq, I'd come home from a war zone where I saw things and did things that no 18-year-old should ever have to see or do. And I was dealing with sin that I saw, sin that I did, and sin that was committed against me. And I couldn't bear it. I couldn't handle it. I couldn't deal with this indwelling sin. I couldn't deal with this dividedness of my mind and my heart. So one day, I decided that was it. I walked out to my parents' garage, and I lit a cigarette, and I sat down, and I cried. And just, and just as I was about to grab a can of gas, my dad pulled up. And he came over to me and he hugged me. And he told me that we were going to get through this. And that was my dad speaking to me. And we did get through it. And that by far wasn't, wasn't the last time I dealt with suicide, but it's by far the worst. But I wondered, I wondered who could possibly know me well enough, right? Who, who has the empathy, let alone the sympathy, to bear my burdens? Who could tell the demons to stop terrorizing me? Who, who can end my addictions? Who can change me? Who can erase my history of doing what I don't want to do? Friends, there's a very famous hymn that we've sung here and that millions have sung all across the world. And there's one line that simply begins with two words. My sin. Mine. My years of struggling with addiction, my years of a quick temper, my years of lying and cheating, my years of bitterness, my years of defeat. Can you call yourself a wretched woman? Can you call yourself a wretched man? Are you willing to ask the same question that Paul asks in verse 24? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Friends, indwelling sin has, made been, has been made powerless by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The law of sin has been conquered by the law of grace. With Paul, we say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the gospel. This is hope. Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sin and being brought back from, to life from death has given us new life that's more powerful than the indwelling sin that we have. Through Adam and Eve's unrighteous, disobedient act, we were made sinners. But through Jesus Christ's righteous obedience on the cross, sinners were made righteous. This is called grace. Us getting what we don't deserve. The law of sin no longer stands in between us and fulfilling the law of God. 
Because the law of grace has fulfilled the law of God for us. Listen to what Paul says as chapter 7 closes. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is our life, brothers and sisters. We're in the sanctification phase of our new lives in Christ. Sanctification is not self-reliance on a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps type of mentality. And sanctification isn't ignorance of indwelling, I was born this way kind of sin. It's because behold, before a holy and infinite God, there are no excuses, but rather grace. Sanctification is a growing sense of how sinful I really am, not how much better I've become. It's knowing how broken I really am, not how fixed and patched up my life is. But when you know more about your sin, you'll know more about your Savior. You'll see indwelling sin, but more more beautifully, you'll see a cross that was probably this big when you were first saved. But as you've gone through life, that cross has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. The cross gets sweeter as we taste more bitterness. The cross becomes more precious as we lose more precious things. The cross becomes more central to our temporal lives as we hope more in our eternal life. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Someday you'll no longer see your sin, only your Savior. But until then, this is my charge. Don't make peace. Don't make peace with sin. Don't make peace with whatever nagging, seemingly impossible sin is in your life. Make war against it. Make war against it. You're still fighting battles against sin, but you're a warrior on the winning side. Smart warriors know their weaknesses. Smarter enemies exploit them. So don't be afraid when you're fighting sin. Be afraid when you're not fighting sin. Listen to what I say here. Immature believers, not necessarily young believers, but immature believers say, I've moved beyond Romans 7. I'm a Romans 8 type of believer. I see the word therefore, and I see no condemnation, so everything that comes before the therefore doesn't matter, and because there's no condemnation, then I'm fine. That's true. There is no condemnation. But that's a simple-minded way of looking at this life-stealing thing we call sin. Mature believers, folks who understand the gospel and understand sin, but understand grace so much more, know that they will struggle with sin every day of their life for the rest of their life. But they know that God's grace will always be sufficient enough for the rest of their life. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will never let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. If you know Jesus and believe in the gospel, understand that you can't change anything about yourself. Some of us can't even change our socks. 
from the top of your head to the soles of your feet, you are and always will be covered by grace. Live in it. Live in that reality. Your sin, past, present, and future is paid for. It's not so much that Jesus took an eraser and wiped our slates clean. It's better than that. Jesus took our self-created slates and smashed them to pieces. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God keeps no record of wrongs? Yes, we're still living with indwelling sin, but no, we're not slaves to it any longer. Yes, we'll struggle with sin for the rest of our lives, but no, God won't change. God won't go back on his promise to never leave us or never forsake us. God won't run out of patience, and he'll never cut us off from grace. There's our peace. There's our hope. <clears throat> so here's, here's my altar call. Here's what I have to say to the non-religious or the atheist or the unbeliever or the doubting. Nothing. I've never come across a more succinct and yet profound quote that best describes how Christians should hold out the gospel to the people around them than this one. We do not, hold, we do not draw people to Christ by loudly discrediting what they believe by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source. I can't tell you what to do. No one can tell you what to do. But what I can hold out for you, what I can tell you and show you is a life marked by the same struggles you may have faced in the past, may face in the future, or are facing right now. But if you look closely at me, anybody else in this church, by God's grace, you'll see a mirror. You'll see a mirror reflecting the light of Christ. I'm a wretched man, yes, a wretched man whose life has never, will never be the same because of what Jesus has done for me. All it takes, <clears throat> excuse me, all it takes for the things that I do that I don't want to do to be forgiven is two things. Acknowledge the problem, the sin that's in you, that's called repenting. And then through great mountain-sized works, no, believe. Repent and believe. Believe that your sins are forgiven and that through the death and resurrection of Jesus. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That hymn I was talking about earlier with the line beginning with those two words, my sin, Hear the rest of the verse as I close. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Amen. Let's pray together.